Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Alga, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And as with previous episodes, today we're going to cover the new films premiering this week in the AFI Silver Virtual Screening Room. Recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are also currently available to view there. And this week, we won't be doing the Programmer's Picks section between the AFI Docs online festival we just wrapped up and our attending the virtual Cannes Film Festival market this week. We're a bit crunched for time. So new this week, we have Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things, a definitive documentary account of the life and career of Ella Fitzgerald, the 20th century's greatest jazz vocalist. The Last Tree, British-Nigerian director Shola Amu's powerful coming-of-age tale set in rural Lincolnshire, inner-city London, and Lagos, Nigeria. Reggae Boys, a music-filled documentary account of the Jamaican men's national soccer team's run to compete in the 2014 Soccer World Cup. Beats, a bittersweet nostalgic ode to the 90s rave scene in suburban Scotland from director Brian Welsh, and The Audition, an intense psychological thriller written and directed by German actress and director Inna Weisse and starring Nina Hoss. This is episode 13 of Silver Streams. We started this podcast in early April, along with launching the theater's virtual cinema program as a way of keeping our theater's program going while we all face the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. As we continue to bring you cinema virtually during our theater's time of closure, we want to thank everyone, both for listening to the podcast and for screening films at home from our virtual screening room. Virtual cinema has been vitally important for us during this time. Thank you all for supporting us this way by screening at home. Before we get to the new films debuting this week in the virtual screening room, we also have a special one-night-only event to remind you about, which we announced last week, taking place on Friday, June 26th. That's tonight for those of you listening to the podcast on the first day that it's going up live. And that's the exploitation classic Petey Wheatstraw from 1977. Starring Rudy Ray Moore, not doing his Dolomite character here, but kind of a close variation of the Dolomite character. Petey Wheatstraw is the devil's son-in-law, and this is a one-of-a-kind supernatural action comedy. And tonight's screening will feature live, real-time commentary by actor and comedian Donnell Rawlings, who many of you will remember from The Chappelle Show, and Mike Sargent, film critic from WBAI Radio out of New York City. You can link off of our website to the film site and pre-register now, which is a good idea to get that taken care of ahead of time. Again, Friday night, June 26th at 9.15 p.m. Eastern time is when the screening will begin. The pre-show should be live around starting around 8.15. And tickets for this one are 7.50, and it is a 36 cinema presentation. And 36 Cinema is, if, if you guys didn't know, the organization who brought us Shaolin versus Wu-Tang and the mystery of chess boxing uh, over the past month or so, uh, both uh, live narrated by RZA. Uh, so this is going to be a really fun one, I think. It's branching out from the more traditional kung fu fair, but um, I think it's going to be a good night. Yeah, I think it might be even better than those two. Uh, we'll <laughs> see uh, we'll See what we get. So once again, that's Rudy Ray Moore in 1977's Petey Wheatstraw screening tonight, Friday, June 26th at 9.15 p.m. Eastern Time. 
with live commentary from comedian Danelle Rawlings and film critic Mike Sargent. And once again, a reminder about our virtual cinema program, Your Screening at Home supports AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during this difficult time. We hope that you've seen something that you've loved and that you'll find something new to view in this week's slate of films. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and across our social media channels. And we are on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most of the places you normally find your podcast. And if you're unable to find us where you're looking for the podcast in your app of choice, uh, feel free to navigate to the website. It's anchor.fm slash silver dash streams. And that's our page where you can listen to the podcast directly, or you'll find the RSS feed there. You can copy and paste it into your app of choice. And be sure to hit subscribe wherever you are listening so you can be sure to have the latest episode as soon as it's posted. And you can find all titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com slash silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast to keep up with our latest announcements. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. Okay, the first of our five new films debuting in the virtual screening room this week is the documentary Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things. This film comes to us from Eagle Rock Productions, which is the same company that produced the excellent music documentary Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, directed by Stanley Nelson, as well as Up From the Streets, New Orleans City of Music, uh, which we are currently featuring on our virtual screening room. The film is directed by Leslie Woodhead and traces Ella's career beginning as a street singer in Yonkers, New York, and on the streets of Harlem, and her big break, which comes at an amateur night at the Apollo, one of the very first ones, uh, the inauguration of, of that now longstanding tradition, which gets her hired by the Chick Webb Orchestra, providing her big break into show business and providing her employment through the big band era, beginning with a long tenure at Harlem Savoy Ballroom. And several years later, Ella would herself lead the Chick Webb Orchestra after he died in 1942 at the age of only 30. Looking back at the work of an artist like Ella Fitzgerald, with a career spanning over 50 years, hundreds of albums, and endless touring, it's understandable that the greatest hits fallacy can kind of smush different songs and styles together. This documentary does an exemplary job of explaining the different phases of her career and how her style evolved over time. So she's performing swing tunes in a big band setting in the 1930s. She goes solo in the 1940s, and this is where her scatting really takes off, which she, of course, was famous for throughout her career. Touring and performing alongside people like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and bassist Ray Brown, whom she eventually married. And then she signed with Norman Grants, who, starting in the mid-40s, managed Ella. And then in the mid-50s, after she left DECA, her label for the first 20 years of her career, produced her recordings for his label Verve, where she was resident for the next dozen years or so. And it's here that she recorded her hugely selling songbooks, showcasing her interpretations of the work of Cole Porter, George and Ira Gershwin, Duke Ellington, Harold Arlen, Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, Rogers and Hart, and Johnny Mercer. So the first lady of swing, as she was known in the 30s, becomes the first lady of song. This phase of Ella's career is hugely significant, establishing her not only financially, but as a mainstream pop cultural fixture. 
But for some, it does tend to overshadow other parts of her career, both the jazzier early phase and I think the late 60s period, where having been dropped by the Verve label and her focus on older material, Ella was experimenting with more contemporary work, performing songs by Burt Bacharach, Antonio Carlos Jobim, and doing inventive versions of some R&B and rock songs. The film also recounts an anecdote about Ella helping to open up segregated or de facto segregated venues in Los Angeles, including the role played by Marilyn Monroe in supporting her in this. And perhaps the most affecting revelation from the archives is a radio interview Ella did with Fred Robbins in 1963, which was recorded with the intention to air, but then never aired at the time. She is candid, talking about the embarrassment of explaining the segregation in the United States to international audiences and the indignities she and others had faced all their lives. At the close of this interview, the typically reserved Ella says, I really ran my mouth off. This is unusual for me. I'm so happy that you had me. I got a few things off my chest. I'm just a human being. It's very moving to hear and frustrating to learn it was never publicized in its day. And the film really makes us aware of how hard she worked recording, performing, and touring seemingly nonstop for decades. The film features great archival clips and photos and excellent interviewees, including Smokey Robinson, Tony Bennett, Margot Jefferson, Patty Austin, Laura M. Vula, and son Ray Brown Jr., who's a fascinating interviewee and provides a lot of personal insight. We've screened a number of music documentaries and a lot of jazz documentaries over the years at the AFI Silver. For me, this is one of the very best I've seen during this time. And whether you're a hardcore fan of Ella Fitzgerald already, a casual fan, or really don't know that much, it has so much to offer for everybody to better understand this all-time great musical artist. I highly, highly recommend checking this documentary out this week. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check it out. As, as more of a casual fan myself, I think I probably fall in the camp of knowing only her more popular phase and thinking of her as a bit of a safe artist who you know, maybe didn't branch out, but but I guess that's really not the case, and, and the film shows that. It'll certainly make you understand what she did uh, in her career uh, and all the different approaches and styles that she did, and much of which you would not describe as as safe. And I can't guarantee it's it's going to totally convert you to rush out and acquire a, a bunch of her music, but I think there's a good chance that you'll come away with a new appreciation of her. I, I know I certainly did. Um, and I've continued to seek out uh, her music since I saw the documentary. And I really quickly, I might point out, check out the live recordings. I mean, everything with the Verve production and the heavy strings um, that you're describing, I find in the live performance, there's invention and energy very different from from some of that 50s, from some of the 50s albums. And of course, her, her earliest stuff is the swingiest, but I, I find her 60s period pretty, pretty fascinating too. A lot to look forward to. And I think, you know, some of the archival materials in this film, some of the, the audio and the, and the visuals, that probably also goes some way towards kind of reframing uh, Ella Fitzgerald's image, right? Absolutely. I mean, the good news is that there is a, a good amount of film footage of her performing throughout her career, including the, the earliest years. Also in the early going, there's some excellent street photography and, and film footage to establish the look of Harlem in the 1930s, which is used really creatively. And then in addition to straight documentation of her musical performances, she appeared in um, Hollywood films and, and television a lot through the uh, late 50s and 60s. Um, so there's a lot to work with there, including we see her in her first movie appearance, singing on a bus driven by a cowboy in an Abbott and Costello movie from 1942 called Ride'em Cowboy. 
aside from the performance stuff, there's also a television interview uh, Ella did along with her son, Ray Brown Jr., uh, in their home in Beverly Hills uh, from the late 50s, which I found really endearing, as well as a photo shoot of them playing baseball together in the yard with Ray uh, dressed in a full Dodgers uniform. So some nice, uh, candid at-home stuff as, as well. Of course, the irony was that she was rarely home. She was out on the road something like 45 weeks out of the year. Also, when I was looking into the film a little bit and doing a bit of research, I came across the fact that there is currently an Ella Fitzgerald Barbie doll available. Um, so PSA for parents out there, I think that would be a really cool present. Or if you want to get it for me, I will accept it. Okay, so mark your Christmas lists now, uh, everybody, for Abby. So once again, Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things, and this film is coming to us from Eagle Rock Productions and M. Tuckman Media. Next up is the UK film, The Last Tree, and Abby is going to tell us about this one. I certainly am. The Last Tree is coming to us from Art Matan Films. Uh, they actually recently brought us the Nollywood film, Two Weeks in Lagos, which we, which we had in the screening room for quite a while and did pretty well. Um, and The Last Tree is actually returning virtually after we showed it just a few months ago at the New African Film Festival, where it was quite popular. Uh, the film premiered at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, and it went on to have a great festival run before it was released in the UK last September. And then it won two awards at the British Independent Film Awards at the end of last year, uh, both Most Promising Newcomer for lead actor Sam Edawumi and Best Supporting Actress uh, for Ruth Bellanea. And it also won uh, Best Screenplay at the 2020 Writers Guild of Great Britain Awards. So The Last Tree is written and directed by British-Nigerian filmmaker Shola Amu. And this is his second feature following his 2016 debut, A Moving Image, which was this award-winning multimedia docufiction hybrid about gentrification in Brixton. And yeah, we did talk about gentrification in Brixton a few weeks ago when we were talking about Franco Rosso's film Babylon. So it's all coming full circle. So The Last Tree is based on, in part, Shola Amu's experience growing up. The film is told entirely from the point of view of a young British Nigerian man called Femi. And it's set across three periods of his life from childhood to adulthood, spanning his early years in rural Lincolnshire, his coming of age in inner city London, and finally his journey to Lagos, Nigeria as a young man to meet his biological father. And yes, if you are thinking that a portrait of black boyhood in three acts might merit comparisons to Barry Jenkins' incredible 2016 film Moonlight, you wouldn't be wrong. And certainly several critics have made that connection. And while there are, of course, big differences between the two films, chief among them, this is very unabashedly British coming of age tale. I do think that The Last Tree is just as tender and heartfelt and personal a film. And it's just as beautifully rendered visually and it's just as kind of immersive. So we first meet Femi at age 11, played by the excellent young actor Ty Golding. Uh, and he's living in a small village in the bucolic Lincolnshire countryside with his white foster mother, Mary, played by Denise Black, who's probably best known for her long running role uh, on the soap Coronation Street. And his childhood seems pretty idyllic. He has a tight knit group of friends who he spends hours kind of playing with in the sun dappled glow of expansive, beautiful fields. He's kind of happy at home and school and, you know, his world seems to be going pretty well. Um, and all of this is brought to an end by the arrival of Femi's birth mother, Yinka, 
played by Gembisola Ikamelo, best known in the UK for her work in TV and also the comedy show Famalam. And Yinka is feeling ready to bring Femi to live with her in London and to start a new life with him there as, as a family. And so Femi soon finds himself transported to a high-rise estate in South London where everything seems alien and his world is kind of completely turned upside down. And Femi's mother, Yinka, clearly loves him, but she's a disciplinarian and she can be quite harsh with him. And Femi has little remembrance of their cultural heritage, which she values really, really highly, and she's frustrated by that. And his life at school is difficult. He doesn't really fit in. And, you know, he reacts to all of this, understandably, with a mix of anger and confusion. So fast forward several years and we meet Femi again at age 16, now played by Sam Adewumi, uh, in his first leading role. And he's excellent. Um, he's clearly now acclimated to his environment in, in London. He has a group of friends and he gets into typical teen boy mischief. But he's also kind of hardened himself in order to survive. And he's pulling further and further away from, from his mother and his, his cultural heritage. And clearly he's still angry and confused about his his identity and in looking to forge his own identity and find a place where he belongs he starts to fall in with a local gang and this totally threatens to throw his life off course but while crime and violence are kind of lurking in the story Femi also experiences everyday teenage things messing around with his friends experiencing young awkward love and kind of just being in that weird moment that we all experience between childhood and adulthood when you feel like you don't really fit in anywhere. And Shola Amu does a really brilliant job of subverting the expected narrative for a young black man growing up in inner city London. And there are some really moving and galvanizing moments here. There's an understanding school teacher played by veteran British actor Nicholas Pinnock. And he's one of the only black teachers in the school uh, in which the majority of, of students are, are black. And he intervenes to help Femi at a critical juncture. And there's also a really lovely moment when Femi realizes that Tope, played by Ruth Bellanet, who I mentioned won, won the award at the British Independent Film Awards, uh, the girl he has a crush on, is also secretly listening to The Cure uh, after an earlier scene in which he lies to his friends when they ask, what he's listening to uh, and he, he tells them it's Tupac, it's actually The Cure. Um, and that detail was apparently directly plucked from the experience of director Shola Amu, who's a big fan of The Cure. Uh, and he was really delighted apparently to have Robert Smith watch the two scenes in which his songs are used and approve them for the, for the film. And then the film's final section shifts location once again as Femi, still seeking his identity, but a little bit older and wiser, travels to uh, Lagos, Nigeria with his mother for the very first time. And he's, he's going there in order to meet his biological father. And Amu kind of reframes Lagos too. And we see Femi's journey there as simultaneously complicated, but also exhilarating and freeing. And Shola Amu has actually said of using Lagos as the final location in this film, and this is a quote, that it wasn't going to be a tourist postcard or poverty porn. The place is complicated, endless different things at once. And then it hit me. This is just like London and just like Lincolnshire. And I will add, for my part, quite a bit like Femi too. Uh, I also mentioned that the film is very immersive and very visually striking. Uh, the cinematography is by Still Williams, who also worked with Shola Amu on several of his short films, as, as well as a film that I really like from 2013 called Gone Too Far by Destiny Akaraga. And Williams 
really creates a distinct sense of place and state of mind for each of the film's location. There's a big contrast between rural Lincolnshire, where he uses wide shots, beautiful landscapes, warm, saturated hues, and then London, where he's using much tighter shots, handheld close-ups, far more constrained hues and kind of gray and blue hues. But he also finds light and beauty in the urban setting too. And this is another way that Shola Amu subverts expectations. We all know the trope of the dangerous, gritty, concrete-filled inner-city estate, and we've seen it in a thousand British films. But that's not exactly what we have here. There's also beauty and a sense of community and, and joy. So Shola Amu calls the last tree a search for identity, which in many ways mirrors his own. And he really does give Femi's journey and path to manhood a truth and realism and pairs it with a poignancy and and humor that gives the film the possibility of being many things to many different people. There's certainly some social commentary and critique, but there's also a really personal, heartfelt story here that applies on a universal level. We're also very lucky that there are going to be two virtual online Q&As with director Shola Amu. Uh, There'll be one on Wednesday, July 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern, hosted by the Cinema Arts Center. And then a second one on Tuesday, July 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern, hosted by Indie Memphis. And uh, you can join one or both, and I would highly encourage you to do so because I've read a few interviews and listened to a few interviews with with Shola Amo, and he's a really fascinating uh, director, and I think he has a lot to to add to uh, your viewing of the film. So check it out. Yeah, definitely check out those Q&As if you're going to watch the film, and of course we hope you do, Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you made the connection with uh, Still Williams, uh, the cinematographer there, working with Shola Amu on this film and how visually stunning it is. Uh, It reminds me of uh, maybe their collaboration, uh, Dear Mr. Shakespeare, which which I saw, one of his shorts. um, And that one was visually arresting. So I'm sure that at feature length, it's even better. Yeah, I mean, the film is absolutely beautiful, as I mentioned. And yes, um, Shola Amu has worked with uh, Still Williams on a few films, short projects. And he's actually worked with the same team for quite a few of his, his short films, including his editor and also his composer, Segun Akinola. So, you know, they've done a few things together and they're a very tight-knit, uh, well-oiled team at this point. And I'll also mention an article I came across today, actually, written by Brooklyn Academy of Music film programmer Ashley Clark in in The Guardian. And he lists 10 of the best Black British films from the last 40 years. And on that list is The Last Tree, uh, along with Babylon, actually, which which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So take a look at the list. It's a really good list. And I'm going to say a double feature now. Please watch The Last Tree and Babylon. That sounds good. So that's The Last Tree, an encore from this year's New African Film Festival, and that is coming to us from Art Matan Films. Next up is the documentary Reggae Boys, and Ben is going to tell us about this one. Yeah, so Reggae Boys is an encore from our DC Caribbean Film Fest from 2019, where we screened the film with Sheldon Sheppy Shepard. Uh, he's one of the founding members of Nomads and features prominently in the film. Um, as both a musician and he's also an actor. Um, this one was directed by Till Schauder, and he's coming to us from Row House Cinema. The presentation in our virtual screening room is actually in celebration of Caribbean American Heritage Month. 
we would be normally having the festival, the Caribbean Film Festival, around this time. We would have wrapped up a couple weeks ago. Um, and of course, we're unable to this year. So just offering this one up for those who want to revisit it uh, from the festival or who didn't make it last time. So in the documentary, we follow the journey of the Reggae Boys, the Jamaican national soccer team, as they work to qualify for the 2014 World Cup. The last time Jamaica qualified for the World Cup was for the 1998 edition. And this was uh, on November 16th, 1997. And it was reported that not a single crime happened that day when the news, uh, when the results happened for, for that match that put them into the World Cup. That's really emblematic of how soccer unifies the country and is an integral part of, of daily life. And part of that uh, very team, one of the key players is Tapa Whitmore. And he's, uh, when the doc starts, the coach for the Reggae Boys on their way to the 2014 World Cup. Um, but currently they're on a losing streak and we see footage from a devastating loss against the U.S. Um, on Jamaican soil. And that loss really puts them on thin ice uh, in terms of qualifying. And after, after those results, Tapa decides that he, he isn't right for the team and he can't. He can't be the coach anymore, resigns. And in his stead, uh, German native Winnie Schaefer steps up, takes on the challenge of getting the team into the, into the 2014 World Cup. And as these losses are occurring, we hear an outcry from the community in Kingston who's been rallying around uh, the amateur superstar Tuffy Anderson, demanding that he get on the pitch and play for the national team. Um, and when Coach Winnie arrives, he's, he's out scouting for local talent and trying to push the team to the next level. So he's exploring neighborhoods in an attempt to absorb the local culture. And as he's doing so, he gets some encouragement from Bunny Whaler, uh, the co-founder of Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, and he gets some encouragement from him to add Tuffy to the team. And incidentally, while he's uh, getting this pitch from Bunny uh, to add Tuffy, um, he's also introduced to what Bunny uh, calls the herb. Um, in, in the chance meeting. And it's a very uh, humorous scene where definitely a fish out of water having never encountered it in, in, in his entire life. And, and Bunny um, actually claims that he, uh, he's played football his life, but he never really played football until he smoked the herb. Throughout the film, we, we follow Tuffy, the amateur superstar, as he goes about his daily life working in a metal factory by day and plays soccer by night. Well, we also spend a lot of time with the, the young band Nomads, who are huge proponents of Tuffy as a positive influence on youth in the community. And they're very into the idea of the interconnection of music and soccer in Jamaica. And specifically with their music, uh, we see a lot of performances from them, some great music, of course, their weekly soccer game. Um, and we have interviews with the band in their shared home and get, get a peek in their lives, as well as plenty of interviews with Tuffy um, on his, his quest to become a member of the national team. And when Tuffy's finally called up to the national team, he makes every minute count and scores the tying goal in the final seconds of stoppage time in Jamaica's game against Panama, uh, keeping their hopes alive for one more game. The, the documentary captures a moment beautifully and you're left cheering for the reggae boys to win despite the insurmountable odds. Uh, we see the importance of Tuffy's rise as an amateur player, especially coming from a working class background. He inspires uh, the whole country and, and the youth in particular. Uh, it's a very uplifting and engaging story with some top notch music. And if you didn't get a chance to see it last year in the Caribbean Festival, um, or if you just want to revisit it, 
I highly recommend checking it out in the virtual screening room. Well, the tagline of the film alone should really sell it to you. It's an inspirational underdog story full of healing herbs. And I think that sums it up quite well. Um, it was great to have um, musician uh, Sheldon Sheppy Shepherd here last June for the uh, Caribbean Film Festival. He was really fun and a really great guest. And yes, he's a musician, but also, as, as you mentioned, Ben, he's, a, he's an actor. He was actually in Idris Elba's recent film, Yardi, and he was in Storm Salter's film, Best must come from from a few years ago that was it's also a um caribbean film fest alum so uh it was really fun to have him here and actually the weird thing is that on the day we were screening the film last year the reggae girls the female soccer team were playing in the world cup against brazil um and uh they lost just before the screening but it was it was a fun time it was there was a lot of uh, emotion in the air from that game and uh, of course, as you as you mentioned, Sheppy was a great guest and a very charming and very handsome guest, I think. Uh, yes. I will agree. For those of you who don't regularly follow international football, you may be happy to know that whatever Jamaica's frustrations have been qualifying for World Cup play, they have had good showings regionally. They've now won, I think, a total of six Caribbean Cups. And they've had good showings in the North American Gold Cup tournament, uh, twice placing second in the last few years. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, due in part, I would say, to Tuffy Anderson's uh, joining the team. He really inspired, of course, as I mentioned, the nation and also his teammates around him. Um, the, the Gold Cup wins aren't part of the documentary proper, but they are mentioned um, as, a, as an add-on there at the end. So, yeah, I think they're, they're doing well. All right, so that's the documentary Reggae Boys, and that's coming to us from Row House Cinema. Next up is another UK film, Beats, and Abby is going to tell us about this one. So I get to talk about two UK films this week, so I'm very lucky. Um, and Beats is coming to us from Music Box Films, and it's returning, actually, after screening at the AFI European Union Film Showcase in, in December last year. It's directed by Scottish filmmaker Brian Welsh, and this is his second feature following 2010's In Our Name, as well as some prominent TV projects, including uh, the Black Mirror episode, The Entire History of You, which is one of my favorites. Uh, the film is based on the play of the same name by Kieran Hurley, who also wrote the screenplay, and it's an ode to the 90s rave scene in Scotland, as well as being a universal, bittersweet coming-of-age tale about a pair of friends on a mission to have the night of their lives. So set in 1994 and beautifully shot in black and white on location in West Lothian, Scotland, Beats takes place in the dying days of rave culture, just as the 1994 criminal justice bill is being introduced by the Tories in an attempt to quash the UK's rave scene, among many other things. And the film follows two very different teenagers who have clearly been friends for a long time and who are united by their love of electronic music. Jono, played by Christian Ortega, is a shy, anxious, middle-class kid whose mother and her new partner, a straight-laced local police officer, have just announced a plan to move the whole family to a new neighborhood and Jono to a new school. And Spanner, played by Lorne MacDonald, who is actually Christian Ortega's real-life friend from acting school, is the wild, loud, rule-breaking one. He, he lives on a nearby council estate with his nasty brother, uh, Fido, played by Neil Leiper. Uh, and this character could definitely have been in train spotting. And so it's clear that 
the lives of these two friends are about to head in very different directions. And director Brian Walsh uses this as a jumping off point to set up a plot that's very much in the mold of a coming of age film following a group of friends on that one last night or that one last summer before everything changes forever. And so looking for a last hurrah and feeling like they don't really have anything to lose, this lovable pair of mismatched friends steal some money from Spanner's brother, a risky move, and they embark on a mission to attend their very first proper rave with the help of Spanner's slightly older cousin and her two cool-for-school friends. So it all seems like the ideal plan as the pair sneak out into the night for a night of music and booze and drug-filled fun. And of course, it's probably not going to go as smoothly as as they think. And yes, this is a drama, but there is plenty of humor along the way. And the swearing and the drug taking is punctuated by and often part of moments of of brilliant comedy, particularly between the two young leads. And I know that Welsh has cited films like With Nell and I and Superbad among his influences in, in that respect. And yes, also because the film is about the joys of raving, there is a brilliant euphoric hallucinatory central set piece when the boys finally reach their destination. And at this point, the up to now black and white kind of near realist cinematography explodes into flashes of color with trippy visuals from uh, Weirdcore, the music video director known for his work with Aphex Twin, MIA, Radiohead, and for the Warp record label. And it's a real surge of energy at the center of the film. And these flashes of color suddenly invade the black and white cinematography. Um, The director of cinematography actually is Benjamin uh, Kraken, and he has another film coming up that I'm very excited about, Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan. And he also shot the 2017 film Beast, starring Jesse Buckley and Johnny Flynn. And this scene really allows the viewer to get inside the heads of the two young men in the moment. Um, But it's also, of course, a symbolic moment of freedom and rebellion and disobedience. And it marks a pivotal moment as these two teens start to understand and experience more of the world beyond the confines of their regular lives. And of course, there is an excellent soundtrack here, especially for 90s dance music aficionados, The Prodigy, Orbital, Inner City, LFO, Left Field. And there's even some Lee Scratch Perry in there too, for good measure, a reminder of the influence of dub and reggae on on dance music in the UK, particularly on uh, jungle and drum and bass in the later 90s. And while the film is a personal drama about two friends being kind of tested by the things that separate them and going on this final voyage of exploration together, it also has a very specific socio-political commentary and context. It's set, as I mentioned, against the backdrop of the very controversial 1994 criminal justice bill. Um, And part of that bill banned any music gatherings of more than 20 people, and this is a quote, wholly or predominantly characterized by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. So that's where the title of the film comes from. Um, And that effectively made large-scale raves illegal uh, and ended the glory days of 90s dance music culture in in the UK. And the bill prompted outrage and wide-scale protests uh, among electronic music bands at the time, but it extended way beyond rave culture. It was also an attack on diversity, on traveler culture, uh, on the peaceful environmental protests that were happening around the UK at the time, and many other things besides. And I can actually remember it happening. I was in high school at the time. And it was a big deal. Um, And this film is a really precise 
evocation of, a, of this specific moment in time. And it's an ode to youthful rebellion and identity seeking, and also to rave as this subculture that kind of rallied against imposed norms and celebrated connection and community and being other. And I think for that reason, the film is also quite moving. It has an elegiac mood to it. Uh, despite all the hard drugs. It's also about the ending of this platonic love story between these two central characters. It's an end of an era for these two friends. Uh, and it's also the end of a cultural era. Um, and with all its boisterous, youthful exuberance, the film is also nostalgic and kind of bittersweet. The film won a 2019 BAFTA Scotland Award for Best Actor for Lorne MacDonald, who plays Thana. And it nabbed the Best Cinematography and Best Sound Awards at the 2019 British Independent Film Awards, all very well deserved. So we have two films that were big winners at the uh, British Independent Film Awards this week. And uh, I highly recommend that you check both of them out. So as Abby knows, we've taken to describing this film around the office as Train Spotting Junior as a shorthand for it because it does have so much overlap with that very well-known film and uh, originally, of course, novel by Irving Welsh. Um, but this is a much less cynical work than that. It's, it's hard to out-cynic that particular film with almost nearly like teachable moments type content um, with, with where the story goes and, you know, just more of a heart to it, I think. But for me, I mean, everything that Abby was was talking about with how well made the film is wouldn't mean as much if not for the fact that the young actors are really, really terrific. And I think both of the British films that we're featuring this week have a number of young actors who hopefully we'll be seeing again very soon as they kick off what I hope are promising careers. Yeah, I think we'll definitely see more from everyone involved in both of these films. I mean, the young cast in The Last Tree are excellent. And I think um, Sam Adewumi has finished a, a web series called The Watch, which is based on characters from Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel. So that should be popular. And yeah, the two young leads in Beats are both fantastic. And yeah, there's a, a kind of sweetness to their performances. They're not Renton in, in train spotting. They're much more likable. So once again, that's Beats coming to us from Music Box Films. And the fifth and final film that we are premiering this week in the virtual screening room is The Audition, a film from Germany, uh, in German, Das Vorspiel. The great German actress Nina Haas stars here as an obsessively driven violin teacher in a music-focused high school. In this intense psychological thriller written and directed by actress-director Ina Weisse. And Weisse is mainly an actress. This is only the second feature film that she has directed, her other feature being 2008's The Architect. Weisse co-wrote the screenplay here with Daphne Karazani, uh, with whom she also collaborated on the previous film. The audition stars Nina Haas, who many of you will recall from films like Phoenix, Barbara, and Yella, all made with the great German filmmaker Christian Petzold. All of those films we had featured previously uh, in editions of our European Union Film Showcase. She also appeared in the John le Carré adaptation a few years back, A Most Wanted Man, directed by Anton Corbijn and starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then most recently, she appeared in a film called Pelican Blood, which we featured in last year's edition of the EU Film Showcase. And Haas won the Best Actress Award at the San Sebastian Film Festival last fall for her performance in this film. Here she plays Anna, a former violin prodigy, now violin teacher at a music conservatory, where following a school audition with a split vote for admission, 
Anna advocates for a young student named Alexander, played by Ilya Monti, including taking him on personally for tutoring. At around this same time, Anna accepts an invitation from her colleague Christian, played by Jens Albinus, to play as part of a quintet. And we're led to understand that she's performing publicly for the first time in a long while, but it doesn't go well. She has performance anxiety and basically gets a case of the yips when the time comes for the public performance. And it's at this point that the teacher-student relationship takes a darker turn, with Anna ordering hours of practice, obsessive repetition, and directing harsh criticism at her young charge. And this all adds to stresses in her home life, including with her somewhat neglected husband, Philippe, played by Simon Abkarian, and her definitely neglected 10-year-old son, Jonas, who also plays the violin, but without displaying any real promise to advance with it. At first, this film, set among classical music circles, might look rather polite, but it's actually quite an intense psychodrama. And while Anna at first might appear to be an inspired educator dedicated to an underdog student, she's slowly revealed to be kind of a problematic employee. Not that she's a monster, just a highly fallible human being. Compared to other complicated student teacher films, it's not quite like the kindergarten teacher where the protagonist was actually deluded. It's not quite like Whiplash with J.K. Simmons as a narcissistic, sadistic jazz educator. It's also not as over the top as The Piano Teacher, the 2001 Michael Hanukkah film starring Isabelle Huppert. But like that film, once the stakes are raised by mid-film, you're constantly on edge that it might spill over into that kind of lunacy. The audition does take a dark turn, but remains realistic and ultimately thought-provoking about some of the complications and nuances to the teacher-student relationship, especially at the higher levels of talent and intensive teaching. And it looks at the ways that this relationship can become toxic if it's subsumed by a frustrated artist projecting his or her disappointments and anxieties onto another person. The audition takes the old adage about those who can't do teach and takes it into some discomforting emotional areas. This exquisite psychodrama comes to us from Strand Releasing. It was one of my favorite films at the Toronto Film Festival last year, and I highly recommend it. I'm very happy that we're able to be featuring it as part of our virtual cinema selections this week. And it uh, rounds out our musical week in the virtual screening room, um, with the four of the five being kind of predominantly music heavy uh, of the new films. Um, and, and this one in particular reminds me of a film we featured in the EU Film Showcase uh, in December, which is another musical um, musical film with a mother there um, kind of being excluded from her son's first big piano performance. Um, so uh, another connection is, is, of course, German as well from the director of A Coffee in Berlin. Yeah, uh, one more opportunity for a solid double feature uh, for anyone so inclined. And yeah, totally by coincidence, we have uh, quite a bit of um, music content, good music content in our in our films this week. And um, speaking of the music, you know, with this music conservatory setting, uh, I assume there's a lot of great classical music on, on the soundtrack here. And, you know, this sounds very tense and thriller-like, so I'm imagining rousing, dramatic classical score. And I always enjoy seeing the ways in which works by well-known composers are used differently in different films. Are there, are there any classical classics to mention here? Classical classics, yes. Uh, <laughs> lovers of classical music will certainly not be disappointed. Um, there's, there's a lot featured on the soundtrack, uh, including selections, multiple selections from Bach and Brahms and Mendelssohn, Schubert, Vivaldi, among many others. Um, but I do want to mention that the young actor who plays Alexander is a real-life violinist, and we see him actually playing his pieces 
including pieces by Bach and uh, Rudolf Kreutzer. And he's really impressive. He's really good. So, you know, often the actors sort of learn to make it look convincing what they're doing just enough. But in this case, we have a, an actor who's also really a musician and uh, all of his performance scenes are, are amazing. Okay, so once again, that's the audition coming to us from Strand Releasing. And that wraps it up for what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. Also now playing, we have Tommaso, Abel Ferrara's semi-autobiographical tale about an American expat filmmaker living in Rome and struggling with a late midlife crisis. Here played by the great Willem Dafoe. And Capital in the 21st Century, Justin Pemberton's documentary, based on Thomas Piketty's landmark 2013 economics bestseller, which remains one of the most popular films in our virtual screening room. Also continuing this week, Morona's Fantastic Tale, beautiful animated film told from a dog's perspective from Romanian director Anka Damian, and two films by Korean master filmmaker Hong Sang-soo. Hill of Freedom from 2014, a romantic puzzle about a long-distance relationship between a Korean woman and a Japanese man, and Yourself and Yours from 2016, a delightful comic romance about the complexities of love and identity. And we have a pair of historical dramas from the 80s that were recently restored, still in the virtual screening room. Uh, the Killing Floor from actor and director Bill Duke here in his directorial debut, uh, starring Damien Leake as a union worker in the Chicago stockyards uh, during the summer of 1919 when the race riots uh, occurred. This also features Alfre Woodard as his wife. And The Grey Fox, a Canadian Western classic starring Richard Farnsworth as Bill Miner, the gentleman bandit. And for They Know Not What They Do, Daniel Carslake's follow-up to his 2007 documentary For the Bible Tells Me So which takes a look at present-day challenges faced by LGBTQ people confronted with religious intolerance, everything from coming out to their families, to conversion therapy, to being the target of violence. We have two more very different documentaries, which we opened last week, continuing on. In My Blood It Runs, a powerful film about Aboriginal youth in Australia, which had its US premiere at AFI Docs last year. And You Don't Know Me, filmmaker Jeffrey McHale's examination of the very complicated history of Paul Verhoeven's 1995 disaster piece, Showgirls. And continuing on, we have a pair of biopics, uh, in the virtual screening room, Mr. Jones is about the Welsh journalist Gareth Jones, starring James Norton, directed by Agnieszka Holland. And Shirley is a biopic of famed author Shirley Jackson and stars Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson. It's directed by Josephine Decker. And we're also featuring three restored classics from France. Les Choses de la Vie, Claude Sauté's classic 1970 romance starring Michel Piccoli and Romy Schneider. César and Rosalie from 1972, also directed by Sauté, also starring Romy Schneider. And La Traversée de Paris, Claude autant Lara's 1956 French occupation set Caper, starring Jean Gabin, Beauville, and Louis de Funès. And you can find all of the titles we just discussed, plus many more, on our website, afi.com silver. There you will be able to find and access the film's screening links, which you'll also be able to find in our e-blasts and social media posts. Your screening at home helps support AFI Silver during our temporary closure. Thank you for your support. Okay, that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope you see something you love this week. Have a good week, everyone, and we will see you when we get back from virtual can, which I'm sure will be just as fun as actual can.
it will be just as fun, just as fun for me, I'm sure. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in this week and we hope uh, you come back for the next episode. And it's been a while since I've reminded you, but if you haven't yet done so, please rate the podcast. If you're in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use, uh, if you give us five stars, give us a nice rating. We'd love to see those. And it also helps push us in front of uh, people who may not hear the podcast or get our information via email. And once again, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theatre and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And as always, if you have streaming suggestions, please tag us with your picks. And music for this week's episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more of their work at their website, sessions.blue. <laughs>